Welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber, and I'm sitting here with James Harkin, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and Sarah Pascoe. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days, and in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, James Harkin. Okay, my fact this week is that the first man to use an umbrella in London was pelted with rubbish for doing so. Hmm. Oh, but fortunately, he had an umbrella. Yeah. Was that why he took it out? He didn't, although um, according to his biographer, when one person threw rubbish at him, he used his umbrella to give the man a right good thrashing. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. wow. So he, he turned... That's, that should be the fact. The first ever outing of an umbrella was used to beat a man. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's quite cool. I should redo it. Yeah. <laughs> no, so what... Um, so... Yeah, so this is a guy called Jonas Hamway, uh, and he had been to France. He was a bit of a traveller, and he came back from France, and in France they'd all been using umbrellas for quite a long time, but in England they were seen as kind of um, either effeminate or a weakness of character that you'd have it, or just French, which was a bad thing oh, at the time. so when you say it's the first person seen public with an umbrella, you just mean the first man. Yeah. <laughs> like the women had them every day. They were beating You're each right. other. Did I not <laughs> say man? You, oh. did say, you did say man. Did I say man? Yeah. Oh, okay. oh so okay. women, women were using... So he was the first... Yeah. Yeah, Guy. so women right. were using them, um, and men were using them all over Europe. Go on, Andy. Well, I think also priests were using them because there, there's, uh, there's oh, a little. Basically, women <laughs> <laughs> in their girly clothes, <laughs> always singing songs, <laughs> smelling perfume everywhere. <laughs> Um, yeah. But basically, they, I think they had them at funerals, but they had these huge heavy things at funerals, which would, would, maybe they'd have an assistant, because it, they'd be outside and it'd be raining, oh, so they wanted yeah. to keep dry like that. Mm. But yeah, no, proper lads, uh, <laughs> as, as Sarah rightly points out, did not have them, I think. Yeah, you're right. And so what happened was, if it was raining in London, um, this was in the 1750s, you would probably hire down a handsome cab or a someone carrying a sedan chair or something like that and that would help you get out of the rain and so it was the people who were driving these cabs who didn't like the guy and so they started throwing things at him because they thought that he might put them out of business yes I knew it was the hackney kind of carriage men that had pelted him with rubbish but I just thought it was because he wasn't very popular (laughs) no so but it was because actually he was their competition so also did you know that he was anti-tipping this Joseph was he yeah what do you mean by tipping like well tipping people so again another reason why the hackney cab drivers might have been like (laughs) Shut your mouth, Hamway. (laughs) And he was anti-tea drinking. Okay. Why was he anti-tea drinking? I don't know. It's just Wikipedia says he was. (laughs) No, I I do know. Oh, you Um, do know? Oh, Andy knows. So he wrote this whole essay about tea because uh, he thought it'd be he again thought it was French and that was a bad thing at the time uh, and he said men seem to have lost their stature and comeliness and women their beauty your very chambermaids have lost their bloom I suppose by sipping tea oh. so he just thought it was bad for people yeah okay yeah. well it's a good job that me Sarah and Dan are all drinking wine and you're drinking tea tonight <laughs> <laughs> like an ugly chambermaid <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's weird, isn't it? Because actually, umbrellas and tea both 
Chinese originally. Yeah. yeah. So actually, it feels like he's kept saying French, but it was a different kind of racist. <laughs> <laughs> it was less acceptable. But also now very English, right? Yes. Like carrying, a, Although, carrying an umbrella like a businessman. Like uh, an, yeah. yeah. Um, apparently, most umbrellas are still made in China. Are they? Yeah. But actually, yeah. they found that the Terracotta Army, oh, really? there's one of the chariots that has a giant umbrella that's wow. attached to it. That must, yeah. that must have been an amazing discovery when they yeah. saw that. Because yeah. you, but you would think you'd invent the umbrella before the house. Like you think that in terms of people, they were like they'd get like a rough kind of covering, and hang on, we could add walls to this. Yeah. And it would be that way round. So you think that the house is just a very advanced umbrella? umbrella. It is. It really is. If they were to look at, oh my gosh, look what they've done! <laughs> they've got toilets in their umbrellas. Uh, this was the 1700s uh, yeah. that yeah. this happened in. But do you know the first time that an umbrella was mentioned in the UK? was in the 1600s. Okay. Mm. And it was in a book by Thomas Corriott. He was a he was a court jester for the son of King James I. And he wrote this amazing book which came out in the same year as the King James Bible, uh, which was called Corriott's Crudities, hastily gobbled up in five months' travel. And he went from London to Venice in the same pair of shoes. Um, and he came back and... <laughs> oh, God, it sounds like someone who needs an Edinburgh show. <laughs> Doesn't it sound like a third year and scraping the barrel? Just, uh, I'm going to walk to Venice and I'm not going to change my shoes. <laughs> um, yeah, so he came back and he put he put his... Uh, supposedly put his shoes into a church, hung them up. He was like, this is the one pair I wore. And he was quite famous in his day. So in his book, he mentions umbrellas for the first time because as he was passing ah. through Europe, he saw mm. them. He also mentions the fact that everyone was eating using this forked device. And oh. that supposedly, as well, is how we started using forks. That's interesting ah. because actually, I think the first people to use forks were kind of ridiculed, weren't they? Yes. Again, effeminate, I think. Were they? Yeah. There was one famous guy, I can't remember who it was, who used a fork and was known as fork user, and that was supposed to be an insult. <laughs> they were like, you yeah. fork user. Is that because it sounded exactly like yeah, fuck you? Yeah, it's that sound. Is that <laughs> where we got it from? <laughs> Maybe. Do you know what early umbrellas were nicknamed in England? No. They were called Robinsons <gasps> because in the book, Robinson Crusoe, oh, yeah. he makes himself an umbrella. Before he makes a house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all coming together. Yeah. Everything makes sense. <laughs> Do you know who had the first umbrella covered with Kevlar to make it uh, bulletproof? No. no. Nicholas Sarkozy. Did he? Wow. That's good, isn't it? Yeah, he was like, I'm going to be dry and safe. Any of those uh, <laughs> sky assassins. <Yeah. laughs> Wow. wow. Did he carry the umbrella or was that a bodyguard item? No, he, he, he held it himself. It must have been very heavy. But apparently other people have them now. Yeah. Is it heavy Kevlar? Uh, I, I would assume, it must be. I assume so, but maybe not. I mean, I'm sure he had, you know, special light, as stuff as light as possible. Yeah. They'll be making houses out of Kevlar next. <laughs> <aren't they? laughs> Um, I found some famous umbrellas that I right. thought... <laughs> Is there a Wikipedia list of famous umbrellas? There should be, and there also should be an umbrella museum where they keep them, because I would definitely go. There's not... I haven't found an umbrella museum. I have found an umbrella cover museum. Huh? What, you mean the thing that slips over it? The little... You know when you buy a short umbrella and it's got that little sort of yeah. um, slip of material, yeah. that little pouch that you lose within about 20 seconds? Yeah. There's a museum in Maine devoted to those. You're kidding. Uh, no. The website says... People flocked by the tens to see the museum. Uh, people were thrilled to donate their old umbrella sheets, and the international press went bonkers. So, 
Um, so the umbrellas that I would put into the museum if I had a couple of uh, entries would be, the first one is Mary Kingsley's umbrella. Oh, yeah. Very important umbrella. And I'm surprised that it's not in the RGS. I'm surprised that I, I couldn't find if anyone's actually got it because it was the umbrella that she used to ward off the animals. Famously, she uh, smacked a hippopotamus away while she was in her <laughs> canoe. So uh, she was an explorer in Africa, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. And she went out at a time when she was still, she didn't even wear trousers. She still wore full uh, Victorian garb, the dress, like, it was insane. And She, she went, sounds like such a bitch. She was <laughs> like, amazing. Like whacking hippos with umbrellas. <laughs> like, they're in my way. Like, you went to Africa, love. You didn't put any trousers on, for God's sake. Who's in the wrong habitat here? That's true. I, I'm being unfair on her. She mm. she tickled the behind the veneer of a hippopotamus oh, in order to get it away. That's nice oh, okay. when you say it yeah. like that. And okay. I think she, like, kicked a crocodile yeah. in the face or something. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, but um, yeah, and she uh, so that's one umbrella because she mm. she was an incredible explorer. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the second one is the umbrella that was thought to have assassinated JFK. <gasps> Do you know Ooh, about this story? No, is that a theory? I've heard about Umbrella Man. Is that the- Umbrella Man? That so Umbrella yeah. Man. I hadn't heard of this. Um, so in the famous footage of the um of the JFK assassination, um, there's famously this shot when people are analysing it and not knowing where the shot might have come from. Out of nowhere, as the car is passing a bunch mm. of people on the side, there's just this one guy standing there holding an umbrella. Oh. And it's a sunny day. There's raining. no reason. Yeah. yeah. And they thought, how is this could possible? Could be a parasol. It could have been a parasol. That's true. It was an umbrella, though. It was a dark umbrella. Right. It turned out that it was a guy who was actually protesting Kennedy's father because Kennedy's father was a sympathizer with Neville Chamberlain, who was quite nice to the Nazis. Uh, during his time, and he was just protesting that it was a very. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. Like, if his father was a rain cloud, <laughs> great protest. <laughs> well, okay, because apparently a trademark accessory of Chamberlain's was to carry an umbrella. Okay, that's and still so there's still like six removes. Yeah. <laughs> you had to explain to everyone what your protest means. No, but it's he... like going to a fancy dress party where you look nothing like what you're supposed to yeah. be, and you have no. to explain to everyone. Or being, being an impressionist who goes, "Oh, hello, it was I'm that... Winston Churchill." <laughs> <laughs> that was uncanny. Thank you. Well, except that while uh, Kennedy was at Harvard, he wrote a thesis and it kind of, that was very much a part of that. So he thought Kennedy would get the little nod. And so everyone was going, who's the umbrella man? He turned himself in, he brought Mm. the umbrella in and basically he explained this convoluted reason why he was protesting. And this is the quote from me. He said, I think if the Guinness Book of World Records had a category for people who were at the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong thing, I would be number one in that position. Wow. Because he was there two seconds or so before Kennedy was shot. So there is a website which claims that in 1797 there was only one umbrella in Cambridge and that you could hire it out right okay for an hour at a time 1797 I think as soon as it starts raining there's going to be a rush isn't there (laughs) (laughs) but I don't know whether there was only one there but it's true that in Paris uh, it was common practice as in you could hire them out uh, by the hour and they had they were all clearly recognisable they had a number painted on so they couldn't be nicked yeah Uh, so it was like the Boris bike oh yeah like the bike system yeah except obviously they could be nicked I don't know how you would legislate against that or but in, prevent in it. France because they had the bike system before us then and they weren't getting stolen there it's really interesting culturally that in Paris mm. they left them all in Amsterdam they all got stolen instantly I don't know what we're really? doing really what are we doing in London I think they're, they're too heavy not, and shit aren't they yeah very. <laughs> yeah. yeah I think if you're kind of riding that around someone's going to know that it's not your actual bike you reckon they? yeah <laughs> people <laughs> are like detectives like that sometimes <laughs> <aren't they>? <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, we were talking about ancient China before and the umbrella, um, something I thought I'd show you guys, which obviously doesn't translate too well, but people can Google this. Mm. The Chinese character for umbrella, San, it was designed uh, to look just like an umbrella. Oh, so part of the... It looks like a house! 
house. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's it there. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, just a nice little bit of how Chinese words often work is that you actually mm. designed it initially to look Do like. Do they look like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I was to read Chinese, might I get a clue of what the words are by looking at what they look like? Well, in in its origin, so when I when I was taught Mandarin as a kid, you would start with the super simplified pictorial versions of it, oh, and it would yeah. show you that the, t- the turtle image would look exactly like a turtle, and it slowly became hardened and edged sure. and so on. The numbers, one, two, three, they're just... Just lines. Yeah, for one, and then add a two and a three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Chinese I kind of believe you, but then also I think maybe you went to special classes. They <laughs> 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 make Mandarin easy for Dan. Yeah. <laughs> I get the turtle Just drawing out. finger up, Dan. We know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> Just draw an umbrella. Yeah. We'll just accept it. Yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> um, Some stuff about throwing rubbish at things. Oh, yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, um, so when Blackfriars Bridge was opened, uh, so it was a replacement bridge, and um, Queen Victoria opened it, and uh, there's a statue of her at the end, and she'd been in mourning for ages, like for Albert. So the crowd really hated her by then, so they pelted her with vegetables, mm. apparently. Really? Yeah. Why wow. did they hate her? Because she hadn't been to see them for oh. such a long time, like decades. Well, so they threw vegetables at her. Did yeah, anyone get vegetables. in trouble for that? Presumably they did. Maybe mm. they all said it was the wrong place at the wrong time, and they were just <laughs> protesting <laughs> Chamberlain. <laughs> <laughs> We're just protesting Lord Liverpool. Yeah. You remember yeah. he used to like cabbage. Yes. <laughs> we don't want to go to the Crimean War. <laughs> Umbrella inventions is one of the main inventions that people try. Like I think mouse traps is one of them, and mm-hmm. umbrellas is the other one. Oh, uh, I in- invented a mouse trap. Did you? But it was for pickpockets. So you oh. put a mouse trap in your pocket. And then when someone tries to get into your pocket, nice. it traps their fingers, and then you have to take them two miles away and release them <laughs> in a field. <laughs> That's good, but it makes your pockets unusable, doesn't it? Yes, you mustn't forget and put your hands in your pockets. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, um, there's a museum in the UK, and I wish I could remember which one it is, but um, they have one of the oldest examples of a mousetrap oh, inside yeah. uh, a glass box. Yeah. And the curator came back one morning and found <gasps> a mouse trapped in it because it managed to get inside the oh, box. Clever Mouse. Clearly, clearly yeah. sets, and so yeah, an ancient mouse trap that was never meant to be used yeah. caught a modern day mouse like time travel. I, I once went to a museum in uh, Bhutan, and it was run by monks, and they had a mouse problem that they discovered on that day when I was there. And they're uh, Buddhist monks, so they didn't want to kill the mouse yeah. or even hurt yes, it in any yeah, way. So can't. they were just running after it, chasing after Aww. it. All these monks running in and out of rooms like an old farce. Wow. I love how they think that that's not stressful for mice. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to stress them out. I'm just gonna, I'm just <laughs> It's going to be like a hundred times bigger than them chasing them into the room. A lot of them have, um, so you know about toxoplasma. Have you talked about it before? Toxoplasma yeah, gondia, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so loads of mice have it and it means that they're not scared of cats and they're not scared of humans when they have it. So that's, is it humans as well? Yeah, yeah. with humans as well. Yeah. Um, but so the theory is the people who really like worship cats is because, so lots of people are carried, it's, it's only it. really dangerous for babies to get it. But most, most, lots of human beings have it, and they, the theory is that that's why there's humans who just love cats. Not just like, oh, hey, I've got a cat, but like, oh, this cat is my secret wife. <laughs> <laughs> my wife's like that. My real wife, not my secret wife. <laughs> <laughs> my wife's like that, a cat. <laughs> Ginger, she, uh... <laughs> she always comes home at night. And, uh, Go into the neighbor's house. Yeah. <laughs> Brings me like a mouse. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Sarah. Okay, so my fact is about men, and it's about how uh, the male brain changes when his partner is pregnant. Okay, how does it change? Well, this is all very early research, and a lot of the studies I've looked into have a very small amount of subjects. But it seems like things happen from literally four to six weeks of finding out his partner is pregnant, no matter when that is, that testosterone starts to drop, and he uh, starts to produce prolactin, which is a hormone that uh, creates milk production in female mammals, but in male mammals makes them less aggressive. Mm. So what's really, really interesting is it seems like... Oh, and cortisol changes as well. Cortisol... It's a stress hormone, but in men and women, it also causes you to put on weight because you're storing energy. So for a long time, there's been a theory about, and they've kind of called it like sympathetic male pregnancies, or I think it's called Couvard syndrome, which is when the men oh, start yeah. to get nauseous and get morning sickness, and they get they put on weight as well. There's right. now a theory that actually, in terms of resources, the man putting on weight is quite sensible in terms of storing energy because he's going to have to do a lot more and give a lot more resources once there's a baby. So it's really fascinating. And Wait, d- what does what does the male give in terms of that that more body on a on well, a male. If you think about it, like if you have more body fat, then you don't you have to eat harder. as much. Yep. You work harder, and also and give it your means, food away. Yeah, exactly. Oh. So if you think about times of sort of fast and famine, any kind of stored energy is the difference between living and dying. Yeah. So the cortisol thing is interesting. So another thing I found out when I was looking into this is that the more stressed the mother is, the more cortisol she produces. And obviously, having a new baby is very very stressful. Mm. The faster the baby grows through oh. her breast milk. So cortisol. As a child, it's better to make your mother more stressed. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly what it means. Thank you for interpreting it. Um, they've done rat studies, and I hate animal studies, and I don't think they're applicable, but they, did, uh, they do obviously awful things to animals. But with rats, if they really, really stressed the mother out, then her children would come out much, much tougher with higher levels of cortisol wow. and testosterone and things like that already as if they're prepared for a horrible world wow. it's a kind of theory which is really interesting that whatever you do to the mother especially through breast milk she's telling she's programming her children you need to be ready for this do you have to be aware that your wife is pregnant or does your body yes. well this is the thing I have so uh-huh. many questions about it and number one this is such a heteronormative study yes. as well because the first one shot like adoptive parents people who go through IVF what about gay parents does this all this mm, is all the same yeah. and they have all these questions and then it's like we studied 20 heterosexual couples and did some salivary hormone tests also I have to say so there'll be one test that will find oh my god men have this amount of testosterone then when their partners are pregnant and then it'll be replicated and they don't find it but they'll find something else okay so it seems Mm. like and also with the brain because of neuroplasticity it's so different from lots of people anyway that there's never an absolutely 100% all people do this I was kind of (laughs) thinking if you had a one night stand with someone you're looking at your body going you put on a bit of weight (laughs) (laughs) you go home your girlfriend's like, hang on. <laughs> Did really nothing happen in Ibiza? Because <laughs> you've got morning sickness. <laughs> yeah, so morning sickness. Uh, yes. In these studies, they were saying that men get morning sickness yes. as well. Yeah, they can do. Yeah. Yeah. And, so this, and, and, and the sympathy cramps and everything. Yeah, yeah, which is really interesting. It is we, so interesting. We didn't, we didn't notice it for ages because most of the experiments done were on, as you say, yes. rats. And yeah. rat fathers, as it were... Uh, don't look after their offspring. Yeah. So it's when they started experimenting uh, on marmosets, where uh, the males do look yes, after their yeah. offspring, that they, they notice these hormonal changes in marmoset brains. Yes. Yeah. Ah. So it's, it's one of those things where there are some things that are kind of hardwired because physically we can do them, but it's very, very unpopular to say because it looks like you're reinforcing all these things we're trying yeah. to get away from, which is right. like gender binary and things like being biologically different between men and women, which actually is it's a really, really complex right. area. So and it's not popular. They don't want to study yeah. it. People don't want to do it. 
So, so is that considered controversial? Kind of. Really? Right. So if you, okay. if you were to stand up at a feminist meeting yeah, that would and be, be like, a... guys, it's not your fault. <laughs> like, you evolved to make babies, and until very recently, that's what happened if you had sex. <laughs> See you later. Enjoy your conference. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I'll it's the same with the change stud- my speech. Yeah, the, same, um. the same with the studies of the brain. They, they try and say, like, really complementary things about both genders rather than negative. Right. So rather than going, like, oh, women uh, maybe are less spatially aware, and it's not ever true mm. in terms of it's just like, oh, they'll do a study, and it seems like, oh, men are using their brain this way or this way and then you look at people who are brought up differently and it's not it's not true but the, yeah. the brain is so elastic in terms of how it's used people who do loads of maths are better at maths and that's kind of uh, seems mm. to be the thing it's really difficult not to be reductive in telling people and it's the same with men like obviously 90 percent of criminals are male and crimes, and there's this theory that's because the amygdala is much bigger and the prefrontal cortex develops much later. So you have this emotional, instinctual brain that isn't very good at controlling itself, and that's very sexist. Mm. To say to men like, "You're just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> You're just much closer to monkeys." Right. <laughs> <laughs> I read a really good um, article. Um, it was a study from 2015 at Tel Aviv uh, University, and they were saying, "Okay, well, if you look at men's brains and women's brains, uh, if you look at them generally, you can say, okay, generally a men's brain will be a bit like." this and generally yeah. a woman's brain will be a bit like this but actually 98% of people they studied didn't fit a clear cut yes, profile mm. so you can kind of say generally speaking it's like this but if you take an individual, individual it's not going it to be like be. that it's really fascinating so this obviously men's brains are about 10% bigger which is <clears throat> correlates to body size really mm. but um, what's really fascinating is that there's a lot of um, so dyslexia, ADHD, things like that are all much, much more prevalent than in men than women, and they don't know why. And that's sort of the genetic basis for that, but there's certain kind of brain disorders which are just, you're much more likely, and autism as well, mm. it's, it's more male. Um, yeah, and the testosterone and the crime thing. But I didn't realise as well, testosterone doesn't actually get into the brain. There's a, there's a kind of... Uh, there's something in the brainstem that turns it into a different hormone because of how it would actually change the structure. Wow. Okay. Yeah. There was a just on the on the men and pregnancy thing, the physiological changes mm. to the man and pregnancy. They did yeah. do a load of uh, surveys uh, of men about the symptoms that they'd experienced physically when yeah. their partners were pregnant. I bet their wives were like, "What form are you filling out? <laughs> <laughs> How this affected you, darling?" <laughs> well, a lot of them complained of stomach cramps, basically. But there were a few complained. kind of there were a few kind of illustrative uh, yeah. lines. Yeah. Um, uh, one man uh, said. Uh, my stomach pains were very much like a build-up of a woman's contraction as she's giving birth. Uh, they started mild and then got stronger and stronger and stronger. Uh, another man claimed, I think I was in more pain than she was. Right. Well, the it cramps thing's like interesting. <laughs> the cramps thing's interesting yeah. because oxytocin, which is yeah. the hormone that does make you bond, which does raise for men, especially in the last trimester of pregnancy, mm. and obviously it's what a woman releases when she breastfeeds, it also causes muscle contractions. So it's what causes an orgasm in everyone. And so actually, mm. if you had raised oxytocin, that would absolutely make sense about cramping. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So my reading out that line for a cheap laugh at this man saying, I think I was in more pain than she was, yeah. may have had point behind it. Also, yeah. do you know what? I think people say stuff like that with a wink that we don't hear. Yeah. And that's, that's very the problem true. with the internet. Very true. I think so many things that we people say are joking. Yeah. And then we write it down and go, what a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to send him a turd in the post. <laughs> and I think it's today they were talking about, so w- women's grey matter actually decreases in mm. certain parts of her brain. And that's so she can become obsessed with a baby. Whoa, really? <laughs> she has to be obsessed with it or it will die. Yeah. Like, and, sh- and it's caused by hormones, but uh, you have to have a baby and then just want to stare at it constantly. Otherwise, someone else is going to eat yeah. it. Yeah. Or, I mean, someone else, like a wolf or something. <laughs> like Roger from next door. <laughs> but I think when they first found that out, they saw that the emotion part of your brain shrunk a little bit, and everyone thought that doesn't make 
any no. sense at all. And then they realised actually you're just decluttering, yes. like getting rid of all the not important. Yeah, like pruning they call it. Yeah. And this is the thing with the brain. They, they say these things like, oh, that's the emotional part of your brain or that's the drive. And it's always so much more complicated yeah. than that. Like, so the amygdala, which is like this emotional centre, really, really ancient brain, also is connected to in terms of what you remember in terms of trauma and really like animal instinct. So that's mm-hmm. the thing they yeah. used to call it like the lizard brain, didn't yeah, they? So and it yeah. was the thing which kind of is attaches you to when we were living in the sea or whatever and it's yeah. just instinct but of yeah. course like you say it's, it. It was all, right. it's all really oversimplistic but then also in terms of I mean and my, all of us included were lay people how else are you supposed to understand this really complicated science unless someone goes that's the really old bit like when you, <laughs> you yeah. was a yeah. fish this bit that's monkey bit remember when you were a monkey <laughs> it so is interesting though that the brain can't understand itself yeah that is interesting isn't yeah it? you have yeah. what's that theory of yours that um well, I think it's the only thing that's ever named itself. Yes, that's <laughs> yeah. so cool. I tried to write stand-up about how, you know when you go like, oh my God, the brain's amazing, how yeah. arrogant it is that it's your brain telling you yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, shut up, brain. Yeah. <laughs> it's the most complex thing yeah. we know of in the oh galaxy. I don't think we'll ever understand the brain. Excuse me? <laughs> Just bragging about yourself yeah. up there. You know what you're saying about the grey matter shrinking? Yeah. So if you were to do a list of every animal species on Earth in yeah. terms of how let's say loved a oh, newborn is yes. where would we appear oh, on that we're list we're very very high but you, the sad thing if anyone watches Blackfish the documentary which is so, is that like oh, Black yeah. Mirror for fish oh yes <laughs> <laughs> people don't even talk about how clever fish are they, Charlie Brooker nicked their idea <laughs> um, so Blackfish is uh, and it's really interesting so orcas orcas also have menopause like us grandparents uh, never stop caring for their young young never leave their parents mm. the part of their brain which we again very crudely would say it's to do with familial love is like two and a half times bigger than ours and when their children are taken away from them in the wild to go to aquariums they cry for the rest of their lives whoa yeah does that mean queen victoria was an orca what Hang oh on. because Hang she on. was she was sad for the rest of her life guys i think I i've blown this thing wide open i've never seen her without a big dress on which might have been hiding <laughs> exactly a massive tail <laughs> she was a human head on an orca <laughs> that's why they threw things at her <laughs> Because she was a weird orca queen. Orca. <laughs> oh my god! This is the yeah. They saw him merge from the Thames yeah. to open Blackfriars Bridge again. This is Splash the sequel. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah because I read that um, giraffes when they're born. This is this is quite yeah. separate. Oh, yeah. But just thinking yeah. how like how uh, the human body yeah. um, just is very much everyone's around. Takes the the baby yeah. out, cuts a cord. It's yes. so it needs us to be there yeah. basically. Um, with giraffes, they're born with slippers. I read. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're born with slippers and their what? horns are uh, bendy. <laughs> what do you mean, slippers? They have this odd thing around their the hooves. Little, like, are they hooves? hooves. Yeah. yeah. And they and they shed after about like three months mm. after they're born. Some, or maybe right. three How days. Three days yeah. or three months. Every other species other than us gives birth to young that are ready to live. Mm. And we don't. So we give birth and then the baby continues growing. And that's the thing to always remember mm. in terms of the brain and us as a species. Our whole society, all of our personal interactions are because we can't just... Yeah. Have a baby and look after it on our own. Because the brain is so big. Yeah. Yeah. Massive. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that means stop that it, it with your brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Every time we talk about the brain on this show, I get blown away by the oddness of what we are constantly learning about it. Yeah. Because it just completely flips. Yeah. Uh, it's just such big yes. knowledge every yeah. time we learn something new. Yeah. So this is this is not new, but this blew my mm. mind today when I read it. Blew my brain today. So my brain yeah. is being blown yes. by its own yeah. abilities. Yeah. Um, yeah. I bet it literally, in a side of skull, when you learn brain facts, your brain is like walking up and down, like, <laughs> doing the moonwalk, like, I know it. <laughs> 
So it's uh, if you sleep in a new place, let's say a new house, mm. a new hotel, mm. anywhere you've gone to that's not your regular place, mm. half of your brain stays in alert. a kind of alert position so that it can just wake up like for new sounds. Yes, like a dolphin, like exactly. Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> so neuroplasticity, which is the really exciting thing, the books that have been written about it are so amazing in terms of the brain, the way it prunes itself. That thing about, um, if you go to new places all the time, people who travel and get new stimuli, they build more neurons all of the time because they have to, and that benefits all of the brain. But So this thing that's wow. so fascinating, and Dick Swab's book, um, he talks about how, so your brain, if it doesn't use certain parts, it prunes them as a child. So it's so incredible. But people who mm. grew up in the East who don't have certain sounds, like the R sound, mm. their brain prunes them, and then when they learn English later on, they can't pronounce words properly because their brain physically yeah. has pr- got rid of that part. Yeah. Of Same it. with yeah, us in other languages as well. Yeah, like yeah. a baby can do, um, has the ability in theory to be yes. able to do every yeah. single sound that's known to man, but then you just lose it yeah. at a certain age. Which is the brain going, and it's not because you, it's not a detriment, it's going, I'm going to use this for stuff I do need. Yeah, yeah. yeah. right. Um, Should we move on to yeah. the next fact? Yeah. Did you say that guy's name is Dick Swab? I know. Yeah. He's it. I mean, he wrote the, and he's one of the best. <laughs> There's like three amazing brain books at the moment, and his is one of them. And, yeah. Yeah, and, he, and that's his name. But the thing is, once you've said it three times, you get used to saying you it. You do. And when you, I think if I was friends with Dick Swap, I would never get used to that. You'd think that when his, like, he handed the book and he said to the editor or the publisher, any changes, they went, actually, yeah, I've got Mr. R. Swap. Oh, R. Swap is even worse. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is that a fifth of all the species of coral on the planet have been named by the same man. Mm, Yeah. What's his name? His name is John Veron. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, His nickname is Charlie, uh, which doesn't sound like a nickname, but actually it was in school. He was uh, uh, a teacher said, "Hey, Charles Darwin, stop doing that," because he was doing some cool experiment with animals. So the Galapagos (laughs) collecting finches again. (laughs) Um, So he's he's a marine biologist, and he's been nicknamed the Godfather of Coral. Uh, he's 71 years old now, but he has done so much in the world of lo- looking at coral, exploring it, studying it, categorising it. So in 1972, he was made the first full-time researcher on the Great Barrier Reef, and he's spent more hours diving down there than anybody else in the world, he's studied more of it than any other human alive, and uh, he's just he, he was interviewed in the FT last weekend, and he's an extraordinary guy, so I thought... Uh, he is. Um, yeah. When he comes over to the UK, mm. David Attenborough will introduce him onto stage and introduce him by saying that this is one of the most important scientists in yeah. our time. He's a huge, huge deal. Mm. Really exciting character. Has he done a TED talk? So know. he's not that big a deal, actually. <laughs> I don't think about it. <laughs> um, no. Have you done one? No. Oh, okay. No, I wasn't like about to talk to him. I did a TED talk about coral, right? Okay, so I just get a bit jealous. <laughs> has he ever been on QI? <laughs> yeah, has he? <laughs> God, I'd love it if they just occasionally, <laughs> yeah. just because of quotas, they had to have a deep sea diver. On Sarah Pascoe and Dick Swan. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, go on, Andy. So, generally, 
where you get kind of soft corals and hard corals, but hard corals are the ones which live in colonies with mm. lots of little individual animals, and they excrete the skeleton uh, of calcium carbonate, yeah. which becomes the reef and grows. Yes. Uh, so that's what the... Yeah, that's not the, the animal, that's the of. kind of shell, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, and, and they have tentacles around their mouth, and they can catch things, they can catch little bits of prey, even some small fish they can catch mm. and eat them, and they're yeah. very, very cool. Do you know that they kiss... No, I didn't yeah, know that. Coral kiss. <laughs> what? Oh, <Yeah>. James. <laughs> you have a really sexy gap here. <laughs> My wife is a coral, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, they got this new little um, camera. It's a new kind of camera. It's called uh, the Benthic Underwater Microscope, or BUM. Mm. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, but it lets you see what's happening at very, very um, close up. And they found that these um, polyps, which is what makes the coral, they get the food and then they pass on nutrients to each other by kind of kissing each other. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Is there benefit to an individual from passing on nutrients to another nearby? Well, I think, generally speaking, that's true in a lot of animals. When you all benefit from the kind of the ecosystem, don't you? So that's the thing about altruism. They now understand that you all kind of survive together. That's great. They they all mate at the full moon as well. Do they? Yeah. Yeah. Because of the light. Once a year. It might be the light, or it might might be them sensing something else, or it might be the tide. I don't know. But... um, yeah, they, they. Oh, yeah, because they have higher tides. Yeah. 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 They do this thing called broadcast spawning, uh, where they all release this blizzard of, uh, you know, bundles into the ocean. They're really brightly coloured. Who knew it was so sexy? <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's moonlight. Yeah. yeah. It's sexy down on the reef. Kissing it is. And spawning. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Is it? I get really confused by coral. I don't understand what it is exactly in terms of. There's no brain, yeah. but no brain. there is some kind of system that means they know how to reproduce um what what kind of intelligence level are they at is it nothing and it's just a kind of system that i think it's like if you think of everything as a tube we are a tube from stomach to anus and you have a nervous system yeah so they just have a more simplistic version of what we've got okay um well corals are not tubes in fact because Ah. they don't have an anus well, they, the, their mouth functions as an anus and they have to excrete via the mouth because yes. they're, they're, they're attached to the reef and they're facing outwards oh, into see. the world. So, that, that so they're everything like a windsock. Is... <laughs> 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 in the, the windsock of the sea. <laughs> We're getting less sexy as we go along. Yeah. Yeah. I think the phrase, like a windsock, is quite sexy. <laughs> <laughs> no? Andy's chat-up lines at the moment. <laughs> Was it, what was it Ken Livingston chatted someone up with? Said, oh dear. Like a broom handle in the morning. That was his chat of mine. How nice. Um, <laughs> I'm like a broom handle in the morning. In the cupboards, in cupboards, in cupboards. Yeah, but no, you're right, Dan, because they, they, they are confusing, as in they were thought to be plants, corals, until the 18th century, because mm. you would think so from looking mm. at them, yeah. Um, but they're hugely important, and also they are—they're uh, dying out. So the Great Barrier Reef has been—they call it bleaching, where yeah. um, they rely on little algae living inside uh, the coral, which photosynthesise sunlight and provide the coral with loads of its energy. When the temperature changes, those algae produce too much oxygen that f- stresses the coral out and damages it. So they expel the algae, and then that's the coral bleached because those right. algae are very mm. brightly coloured. So actually, if you look at coral, it's very brightly coloured, but actually it's the algae which is colourful, and mm. coral is just white. So a white coral is like a dead coral? Basically, the algae yeah. Anymore. If they don't get the algae back yeah. in time, 
when the temperature returns to normal, then that yeah. coral is dead. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we would probably think of algae as a bad thing for living. Like if you're covered in algae, yeah, like it yeah, might for be people bad. it's really bad. Yeah, uh, for them, yeah, yeah it's uh, really, really vital. So um, coral is dying at the yeah. moment yeah. in uh, on the northwest coast of uh, Bali. They've been doing this thing. There's a beach that if you walk along, um, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but it's Pematuran. If you walk along this beach, you'll see power cables going into the ocean. So you, literally you'll be walking over power cables. And what they've been doing is they've been attaching low voltage power cables to corals to stimulate them from all the bleaching that's going on. Oh. So they're giving a little electric shocks into yeah. these coral. And for some reason, and again, they're, this, into it. they're, sli- yeah, they're into it, but it's slightly like wow. we haven't shown in any study that they're better than any of the other methods that we're doing. And I think it's still a bit new research, oh, okay. but that's what they're doing at the moment. They're putting electric cables onto coral. Basically, yeah. the whole problem is the sea temperature rising which is yes. not something that can be counteracted large scale you know if it goes up by one degree it's really bad for yes. them and we're looking at one and a half or, yeah. or two degrees of rise in the ocean temperature so uh it looks and that's like, the kind of thing that's like even if we stop now that's the irreversible change isn't uh, it yeah, yeah. and the, the 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 really terrible thing is uh well that's mm. the really terrible thing but also so shallow coral reefs there are different kinds um mm. Shallow coral reefs of the tiny amount of the ocean surface, obviously, um, but uh, about twenty-five percent of marine species mm. have a home, you know, in and around and on reefs, yeah. as in they're these huge. Yeah, so it's like one percent of the planet of the oceans, but twenty-five percent of the yeah, oh, it's, it's not point one percent of the oh, ocean surface. There's twenty-five percent of marine species that manage to find yeah. a home there. So it's this huge knock-on effect that might happen if we lose coral reefs. Yeah, yeah, but have you heard about uh, the twilight zone? so the twilight zone is a deep reef and a deep reef is really interesting because it's far down enough that it would require extra scuba gear in a way that Mm. isn't affordable really Mm. but it's not deep enough that you would send a submersible that was either manned by humans or done by remote so they haven't really studied it and only in the last 20 years have they been studying this twilight zone of reef Mm. where they found that all the fish that live in it are exactly the same as it appears they might have been for hundreds of millions of years. Oh, as in, most coral higher yes. up yeah. would be subject to, say, ice ages and so on, and yeah. they couldn't escape from oh, it wow. because they wouldn't know how to go yeah. deeper. So there's this whole level of new reef that they're studying. They've had more stability Yes, in that they've, whole they've time. had no change because they wouldn't need to escape wow. the, the glaciers or yes. the, they're that deep enough. That's yeah. the thing with that statistic, and I'm not about to poo-poo it, the 25% mm. thing, but obviously there's so much of the ocean we haven't studied because it's too difficult to get to. Yeah. So actually that 25% of like the ones we can count which are in the bright shallow mm. bits. I read something about the seafloor today. Oh, yeah. uh, this isn't really related apart from it's in the sea. Um, but there's a place called Octopolis, mm-hmm. uh, which is just off the coast of Australia. Most octopuses kind of live on their own. Uh, and this is a place where octopuses kind of come together and hang out. And they kind of touch each other, which octopuses <laughs> don't really like to do much um, okay. when they're not mating or fighting. Um, but it's a place ah, where they kind of hang out. It's like a swingers oh. club. <laughs> well, Why did you drop your pen when I said something? <laughs> <just gone. laughs> I was just. You think I was about to out you? I knew I knew you from yeah. somewhere. <laughs> Octopus mistress. Uh, <laughs> oh no! Don't tell your cat wife. <laughs> She's a coral. Um, so here's the really interesting thing about that, right? So octopuses are really, really smart, really Mm. smart. Um, But they're not quite as smart as um, things with a similar sized brain that live out of the water. And one of the reasons is they're not social. And they think that by being social, it helps Mm. your intelligence. 
but they think that this kind of area of octopuses, because they're all kind of hanging out together, they might get smarter and smarter and smarter. Ooh, yeah. And if we were to leave them alone, they might get super smart. So you know that's the tribal effect is what it's called in human beings. Um, and Susan Pinker wrote a book about it, which I don't think she mentions animals at all. But it's that's the theories. The more you interact with other yeah. beings, that you have to learn to communicate, you become more intelligent. And her theory is that men who communicate more on a more tribal live longer, and that it's you know the whole there's all these theories about mm-hmm. men talk a lot less they have a smaller vocabulary they talk less every day in tribes where they talk as much as women they live as long as the women oh do it's they? her theory and her, that's what her oh, book's okay. about yeah mm. there's a fish called file fish yep. um, they eat coral and they um, gain the smell of the coral so it means they can hide in the coral and no one can find them wow. so it's like if you were to eat something and you got the smell of it and then yeah like, then, you, then you like hide in a pizza shop <laughs> 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 no one even knows you're not a pizza <laughs> <laughs> okay it is time for our final fact of the show and that is my fact my fact this week is that the first female British playwright was called Joanna Lumley. Mm. Yeah. But it wasn't Joanna Lumley. It was no. not the first British playwright. As in... As in absolutely our, fabulous. Yes. yes. So it's not the current living Joanna no. Lumley. No. <laughs> this is from the 1500s. Um, and the uh, thing is, is that her name in a lot of uh, online and mm. in books, she'll be presented as Jane Lumley Um, but actually so little is known about people from the 1500s it's quite hard to establish if she was born Joanna or Jane but definitely she was Joanna Lumley and I just thought that was kind of cool I hadn't heard that before but she was a translator rather than a playwright Mm. yes and it wasn't even published or finished (laughs) Um, god I love the olden days everyone's (laughs) dreams could come true (laughs) it has it has since been published in 1909 uh, so it has made it to publication people do put it on in the Mm. UK as a play um, and and uh, but she was a very interesting person. Obviously, she couldn't publish stuff at the time no. because she was uh, what is known as a woman, <laughs> and they <laughs> yeah, they were not no, keen. Thank you. Not keen on them back then. No. Um, they didn't allow them to do stuff like. Uh, put out plays so it's a shame because she was an extraordinary person um and uh yeah she did this translation of can anyone Euripides Euripides yeah Yeah. um yeah I just thought that was quite cool yeah it is cool so um because we were looking up Jane or Joanna Lumley I looked up the first woman in the UK who wrote her own original play Uh and and her name was uh Elizabeth Carey and um I I love it it's called the the tragedy of Mariam do you know what it's about no is it Robin Hood it isn't. It's about Herod. She was Herod's second wife. Do you want to hear the synopsis oh. of this play? I mean, he had a wife uh, called Doris, didn't he? Yeah. That would have been his first wife, I think. Yeah. Or maybe third. Spoiler alert. <laughs> 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 it does not end well for Marianne. <laughs> okay, so this is full of spoilers. But basically... Uh, <laughs> spoilers for something written in 1613. <laughs> yeah, I know. If you haven't seen it so far, <laughs> you're probably not going to see it now. Um, so basically, Herod the Great, his words, um, basically... <laughs> The first four acts, everyone thinks that he's dead and, and Mariam's like working out how she feels about him because she's like, oh, he did love me. He was a wonderful husband, but he also did kill my brother and granddad. And she's trying to work out what to do because um, he's been murdering everyone. But then in act four, Herod returns oh. and he says to everyone, I'm not even dead. And um, then Salome says that Mariam was unfaithful, even though she wasn't. And then Herod kills her. The end. Oh, yeah, oh. it's a oh. long lead-up of four acts of <laughs> deliberation. even then. though she's na- it's named after Mariam, she's only in it 10% of the time. Oh. There's a lot of chorus work. 
Um, Elizabeth Carey, very mm. interesting person. Um, she was she loved reading yeah. um, to the point where her parents had to ban anyone in the house giving her candles at night so that she would stay up by candlelight reading yeah. reading books. So they were like, you have to start. And they were very encouraging yeah. her parents of her reading, yeah. but, but they only said, in daylight. Yeah, only in daylight. <laughs> you you need to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and she was brilliant at languages. She spoke a bunch of languages, Spanish, Italian, Latin, Hebrew, Transylvanian. And this is my favorite fact. It says that later on at the age of 10, so this is all before 10 years old, oh she learned God. these languages. Um, she helped exonerate a woman who was accused of witchcraft <gasps> after noticing that the accused lady was answering yes to every question she was asked oh without thinking gosh. about what she was being asked. <gasps> so at 10, she was like, she's just saying yes because you're asking her questions. You have no idea what you're talking about. And they said, you're right, she's exonerated. She's not a witch. That's so interesting. And then she yeah. went, yes! <laughs> um, so yeah. Afra Ben was oh, yes. a very influential... She, this is later still. This is, yeah. And um, she's often who is attributed she as the first... She says she's the first. Yeah. first female, she wasn't yeah. the first female playwright, yeah. but she, she was a very influential female playwright in the 17th century. Mm. And she was doubly cool because she was also a spy. Yeah. Wow. One of the reasons that she wrote, or she wrote and then she gave it up for a while, and she took it up again, partly to make a living because the government had not paid her for doing all the spying work that she mm. had done. Um, but she, her stuff is really good. Is yeah. It? yeah. Brilliant. I only say that because she's the only one of these three that I've read stuff right. by, but uh, during right. during my English studies. Yeah, Man. same here. And, Ooh, they, yeah. and they said she was the first proper female playwright. Yeah, they, they lied and lied, they lied to, us, to us, didn't they? <laughs> was it her own original play, though? Yeah, yes. they were. Yeah. Yeah. And she and was then, a professional yeah. as well, was she? Yeah, yeah. she like, made money yeah. and stuff. In a yeah. way, I don't want to give shit to my own fact, but yeah. I think she, uh, who you're just talking about, has more of a claim yeah. to first female playwright. Yeah. Well, hers is like an adapted screenplay. Uh, yeah, yes. I think Carrie, Carrie has claimed. Oh, was that was Carrie before? Carrie yeah. is before yeah, yeah, Ben, yeah, yeah. 16, 13. So, can I, well, because we were looking, I was looking up, and I was interested in, like, female first as a thing. Yeah. And so I looked on the Wikipedia list of female firsts, and I found out something so delightful. So, uh, Elizabeth Thibel... Uh, in 1784, was the first woman to ride in a hot air balloon. Ooh. Okay. Ooh, how exciting. But in 1805, only 19 years later, <laughs> Sophie Blanchard was the first woman to pilot a hot air balloon. Oh <laughs> so it took women 19 years <laughs> to work out how to go from being a passenger. <laughs> so, like, riding it. so then I thought, oh, this is so interesting, this Sophie Blanchard. Um, so basically, her husband was a hot air balloon pilot and he died. So she carried on his business. And so she became mm. this first woman. And Napoleon really liked her. And he gave her this title, the Aeronaut of the Airfield Festival or something. And then she died <laughs> because she set off some fireworks. Hit her house and fell to the ground. Oh, and that's why we shouldn't let women do shit. <laughs> they can't be trusted. All of this, so uh, so female playwrights and things, even up until the time of Afro Ben, which is, you know, a, lo a long mm. time after the first play written by women women weren't allowed on stage yeah. yes so it was all boys um but the reason that it was ended was because basically charles ii yes. when he was restored to the throne yeah um fancied actresses he fancied actresses yeah. and he 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 decreed well what we have to do actually i think the public will be outraged about um boys appearing on stage in mm. uh women's roles when actually no one really was outraged about it but he said no it's completely outrageous we must you know legalize and make it, it compulsory for female roles to be played by women and that's oh. basically the only reason it happened yeah. how could he sorry if this yes, is a very yeah. dumb comment how mm -hmm. could he fancy actresses if the because, profession didn't exist because some things kind of happened 
I mean, illegally. Right. You fancy the idea of actresses. <laughs> right. Look at those boys. Imagine if those were real. <laughs> um, so, so things happened uh, illegally, but also, so in Shakespeare's time, what some of the people who are credited writing were f- women. Like, women did actually mm. write things. It's just they didn't oh, get their right. names on them. Yeah. So I read, actually, in one article, I don't know if this is true, but by the late 17th century, about a third of plays staged in London were written by women, wow. but it fell to around 7% in the early 80s. 18th century, huh. and it stayed between seven and ten percent until the 1980s. Yeah. Wow! <laughs> yeah, and it's so related to economics. Actually, when you look at the ups and downs, women who have space and time—it's the whole Virginia Woolf thing—created just as much as men. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, Jane Austen thing, you know, yeah. writing on tiny bits of paper. Well, I went to see her desk the other day. I did. You? I'm a, I'm oh, at the British uh, yes. library. Yeah. yeah. And you're just so amazed. It's such a visual symbol of like this woman like in the corner, like don't worry, I won't take up any room. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, it's like, and it's really tiny. It has her her spectacles yeah, on it. It's the size wow. of an iPhone. It's so really? small. It's yes. really small. She was a mouse. Yeah, she, she was, was a mouse. little mouse lady. <laughs> Queen Victoria was an orca. Jane Austen was a mouse. <laughs> My wife was a coral. <laughs> Are there any actual women, please? <laughs> it's been a trick the entire time. <laughs> Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, you can get us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, James. At Eggshaped. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. And Sarah. At Sarah Pascoe. Yep. And you can also go to our group account, which is at QI Podcast, or go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com, where we have all of our previous episodes. Also, there's another website. It's called no such thing as a news.com. It has all of our previous topical TV show series that we have it's done. Not topical. That was last year. No, it's still going. Trump is still happening. Just if you want to learn about Trump, that's all we spoke about. And it is on no such thing as the news.com. We will be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.